Well, happy Sunday. We're going to start a brand new series. It's going to be two weeks called Deconstruction. Deconstruction is a practice of people deconstructing their faith. And the pandemic changed a lot about how we live. And you you have a few policies put in place that really we had no control over. And I think for some people, they wanted to find the things they could control in their life and re-examine those and actually deconstruct from those things. Now, deconstruction is a term that means different things to different people. And we're going to look at different definitions, and we're going to come up with our own definition. And then we're going to look at two reasons why people are deconstructing their faith. One this week and one reason next week. And deconstruction, going back, is actually from the 1980s. So this isn't a new thing. It's a new thing for for Christians, but it's not a new thing. Deconstruction was a form of analysis developed by Jacques Derrida in the 1980s. And he desired to deconstruct binary constructs. And so he wanted to deconstruct binaries like black, white, good, evil, male, female. So deconstruction has always been around. I mean, it's been around for decades. It's not a new concept. But what he wanted to do, Derrida, what he wanted to do was to form, create a form of criticizing not only literary and philosophical text, but political institutions. And so he believed that your beliefs, right or wrong, builds a permanent foundation. And so he believed that if culture, which is a group of people's belief system, determines something is wrong, then it's time to deconstruct. So for example, culture believes that the binary construct of male and female is patriarchal and it's misogynistic and it oppresses women. So... Derrida would say that each culture handles this differently, but since it's America and since America is male-dominated, it means that we need to deconstruct a binary construct so that women can dominate. And the truth is that biologically, man, there are more male men than women born every year. Did you know that? There are more men than women born every year. Perhaps it's because men die more quickly because of lifestyle choices, and it's the natural order of the world. Think lobsters. So deconstruction is not necessarily based on truth. It's based on desire. Deconstruction is based on desire. So it's the desire to be free from structure and authority. So when it comes to faith, definitions uh, vary to define deconstruction as like walking away from faith or reevaluating what you believe or finding answers to questions and doubts. And so I'm going to read four quotes And they're from pastors, a blogger, a theologian, and another pastor. So Brian Zan defines deconstruction as a crisis of Christian faith that leads to either a revaluation of Christianity or sometimes a total abandonment of Christianity. Mark Hackett defines it as this, the systematic pulling apart of one's belief system for examination. James White explains it this way, To some, the term deconstruct can mean rejecting Christianity entirely, while others describe the process as rebuffing certain cultural beliefs associated with Christianity. So, ex-evangelicals can mean both those who have rejected the label evangelical, which means you believe in the five basic tenets of the Christian faith, aspects of the evangelical subculture, the evangelical church, or those who have rejected evangelical faith altogether. 
And then Mark, Matt Chandler says this, you and I are in an age where deconstruction and the turning away from and leaving the faith has become some sort of sexy thing to do. I contend that if you ever experience the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ, actually that's really impossible to deconstruct from. So here's the tension with any of those definitions. Deconstructing is tearing down. So it's a negative term. Like it's negative in the sense where you're tearing down, there's nothing left. So you're tearing down instead of building up. So from conversations with people, it seems the main reason for deconstruction is they were hurt. They were hurt by church. They were hurt by church leadership. They were hurt by celebrity pastor. They were hurt by family or friend who claims to be Christian. And they are hurt. Some people have, have done this because it's a trendy thing to do. Well, I saw that celebrity pastor do it. I saw that celebrity worship leader do it. Or I saw this person do it. Or this person really mentored me. And so I'm going to do what they do. I do believe deconstruction can be a good thing. And here's how I could back that. Notice what Jesus asked his disciples. Now, they grew up believing that the Messiah was going to be a military leader. Notice how the conversation goes. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Well, some say John the Baptist some say Elijah, others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he asked them, who do you, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. So Jesus is having his disciples begin to deconstruct learned expectations that they had growing up of what the Messiah would be. He's like, yeah, culture is suggesting this, but that's not the truth. Yeah, they're desiring this to be, you know, me to be some military leader, but that's not the case. And the things that they were learning had to shift. And this is hard to do when something has been ingrained for so long. The term Messiah means anointed one or king. So in so many words, here, here's what Peter is saying. He is like, you're a king that not only do we believe, but we're willing to follow. And so he's like, you're our king. And we commit to following you. We pledge full allegiance to you. So, with all of this in mind, how could we de define deconstruction? It might be something like this. Deconstruction is rejecting anything that harms me and others from effectively following Jesus and his command. Okay, so we're going to look at burnout today as one of the reasons why people have deconstructed their faith. Now, burnout, I don't know if you've experienced burnout, but burnout is a syndrome caused by stress that was not successfully managed. In other words, you feel depleted, you feel exhausted to the point where you're unproductive, you mentally check out of, the, of your position, of your role, of your job, of your calling. And it's believed that burnout from the experts leads to cynicism, health problems, isolation, depression, and spiritual melancholy. Like we've seen people over the last 20 years of ministry burn out. We've seen pastors, seminary students, and volunteers begin to burn out. And here's some of the reasons why they told us that they are leaving church or they're leaving the faith. We've had some people tell us, well, they had no time to do everything. They had no energy left in the tank. 
other people said, well, they wouldn't admit this at first, but they eventually did admit this, is that they were doing the last things first or they were doing things that other people could do. And the focus was getting things done instead of developing gifts, talents, and abilities, and even other people. They were tasking themselves to death. And then spending time with people who are energy vi- vampires. You know, our friends were spending time with people who just drained the life out of them. And they had nothing left to give to other people. So I believe the primary reason is that there is a result of overwhelming demands placed on us either by ourselves or others that we cannot manage. So from my experience, I've seen people go down to two paths. One is they burned out and it left them you know, getting out of vocational ministry, seminary, and volunteering. Now they still attended church. And then I saw other people, man, they left faith. It burned them out and they believed something completely different than what they committed to as a young adult or a teenager. And though I can't speak for all churches, I can explain why we do what we do and how we attempt to do less for more. So there's a story, I'm sure you you may be familiar with it if you've been around church for um, for a while. There's a story in the Old Testament of a national hero and leader who needed help before becoming overwhelmed with doing the thing that God called him to do. And God provided some insight from a guest who would help our national leader. So God defeats the Egyptian army. They all drown in the Red Sea. And then all of a sudden, Noah, I mean, uh, not Noah, Moses goes into the promised land that God promised them. And as they're on their way to the promised land, they're in what's called the wilderness. They get to a, a place where there's nothing to drink. The people are crying out, please give us something to drink. So Moses takes a stick, hits it water comes out of a rock. And then they complain that there's nothing to eat and then God provides them manna each day. Now before all of this, Moses told his wife and two sons to go live with her dad, Jethro. And then he would eventually call for them once things panned out. And so they're in the wilderness and this is right before the Ten Commandments are given out. And he calls, sends someone to go Tell his wife and two sons to come. So they celebrate. They have a family reunion. They celebrate God's victory over Pharaoh and the Egyptian army. And now they're set up as a free, independent people. God is their king. Moses as their leader. And Israel begins to live as independent people. So the night, the day, the night, they're celebrating. They're glad they're together, family. And then all of a sudden, notice what happens the next day. I don't know about you. Maybe you have family and friends that come in that you haven't seen in a while. Are you the person that you guys hang out for a little bit and then you go back to work or you go back to do your thing? Or maybe for you, man, you're like, let's take a week vacation and just hang out with people. I'm not sure how you're wired. But notice what happened. The next day, Moses took his seat to hear the people's disputes against each other. So the next day, he goes back to work. Like you're thinking, man, it might have been, it most likely was months, maybe even more than a year that he had seen his wife and kids and all of a sudden it's like, now I'm going to go back to work. I'm needed. And they waited before him, the people, from morning until evening. Next day, Moses go back to work. 
Spending all day listening and making a judgment on relationship disputes could take a toll on anybody. It doesn't matter how extroverted you are, you might lose your mind. And, and most people say that the nation of Israel at this time was about a million people. A million people with one leader. If you're, and then you have the people whining and complaining. My daughter, who's eight, um, she'll whine when she's starving. But she really doesn't know what that means. And it drives me nuts. I will tell her, baby girl, you have to get control of yourself before I do. Like I told her one day, I was like, baby, pack your bags. We're going to go to Central America. I'm going to show you what it's like to starve. I'm sure Moses was losing his mind. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that Moses was doing for the people, he asked, what are you really accomplishing here? He said, you're doing good work, but what are you accomplishing? Why are you trying to do all this alone while everyone stands around you from morning till evening? And Jethro, Jethro has the right to ask this, and he asked a really good question. He's like, listen, you're doing good work, but is it effective? Is it effective that you're the judge and you're judging, you know, over a million people? You're the judge over a million people. Does that make a lot of sense? Is it effective? And then he noticed that there were people standing around Moses who could be used for something. He's like, yeah, I know Aaron's doing the tabernacle thing, but man, you got these other people that seem pretty, they see that they, see, they, see that they could handle themselves, like maybe use them. Moses replied, because the people come to me to get a ruling from God. That's why I'm doing this. So when a dispute arises, they come to me, and I'm the one who settles the case between the quarreling parties. I inform the people of God's decrees and give them his instructions. Look, Moses wasn't wrong. He was God's prophet as the one whom God spoke through. But the question is, was he the only one who was qualified to settle relational disputes? Moses couldn't see what he wasn't looking for. I mean, Moses had been doing this for days, for weeks, and even months. This was normal for him. So with Moses being so focused on settling disputes and being the single person in charge, he could not see that there was plenty of qualified people standing around him to be judges. Moses' father-in-law says to him, this is not good. You're going to wear yourself out and the people too. Listen, Moses, I love you, but man, the job is too heavy of a burden for you to handle all by yourself. Like this is not a good long-term solution, man. You being the judge over a million people, not going to work. And Moses was getting to a point that if he mentally, basically Jethro was helping him understand, listen, if you mentally check out, if you mentally check out, your judgments would reflect one of a checked out judge. And if you burn out, the people will burn out by not being satisfied by your burned out judgments and rulings. And he's like, listen, it's a lose-lose for everyone. Now, he says to him, I know you're not asking me for advice, Moses, but let me give you some advice. May God be with you. You should continue to be the people's representative before God. I understand you have a calling. I'm not telling you not to, not to live in that calling. Teach them God's decrees. Give them his instructions. Show them how to conduct their lives. 
He's like, look, tell them how to do this. Like, if, if you tell them and teach them and show them how to live a life that honors God, then there's most likely not going to be a lot of relational disputes because they're living the way they should be living. He says, but on top of that, select from all the people some capable and honest men who fear God and hate bribes. Basically, look for the guys who are full of character and faith and are not bought. Not willing to be bought. They haven't been bought. Appoint them as leaders over groups of 1,000, 150, and 10. They should always be available to solve people's problem, com- common disputes, but they have to bring the major cases to you. Let the leaders decide the smaller matters themselves. They will help you carry the load, making the task easier for you. If you follow this advice, and if God commands you to do so, then you will be able to endure the pressures, and all these people will go home in peace. He's like, pray about it. Pray about what I'm telling you to do, because I believe this is the right thing. Then notice the word endure. It means to stand. If Moses followed Jethro's advice, the people would not have to stand around so much, and Moses would be able to stand the work. So he encouraged him to do three things, just to recap. One, share and spread the information so the people know how to live their lives. Number two, recruit and appoint finding men who are full of character and faith rather than by age, by wealth, and family ties. Number three, pray about this being the strategy moving forward. And then he said, this is what could happen. Number one, you're going to have more bandwidth to endure, to stand up to the stress of the job. There's going to be shared leadership and then people would experience peace. And the big takeaway for, for us, and, and I'm, I'm going to relate to this to the church, but you can relate this to your, to your home, to your work. It is impossible to provide peace in the local church when the leader isn't at peace. It is impossible to provide peace in the local church when the leader isn't at peace. You could say the same thing about, about your work. It's impossible to provide peace in your place of business when the leader when the CEO, when the COO, when the CTO isn't at peace. It's impossible to provide peace in the home when the mom or dad isn't at peace. Like Moses went nuts before. Like we have it recorded that Moses went nuts because of the people whining and complaining. If Moses goes nuts, then the people would not have experienced peace with each other because of his decision making. So if he burned out, they would be affected by it. You guys, peace in the local church, speaking back to the local church, is so important because it's a sign to a world that already thinks the gospel is for fools. Peace is the result of loving each other as Jesus commanded us to love each other. Jesus said in John 13, 35, he said, just as I have loved you, love one another. Yeah, loving each other sacrificially. I'm willing to go to the back of the line for somebody else. I think for some of us, man, we don't want to rely on other people. Do you know that self-reliance is the opposite of the gospel? Self-reliance is the antithesis of the gospel. See, Jethro was attempting to help Moses see that, look, it can't just fall on you. If it did, he probably would not be around long. See, the gospel is not about what you need to do for God. It's what he has already done for you. The heart of the gospel is that we, don't, we can't rely on ourselves. We need to ask God to help us. 
It's the same thing. Okay, God, just like Moses, he, he took Jethro's advice. He prayed about it. And God's like, this is the strategy I want you to do. Listen to your father-in-law. The same thing for us, guys. We cannot do everything ourselves or we're going to burn out. And our commitment is not just to be a healthy church or organization, but it's that we don't want to burn out our leaders and volunteers. If we burn out, then our attenders and guests who we shape our Sunday service towards, they're going to be negatively affected by it. It comes down to adult walking with a child analogy. So here's a picture of Brooke and I. We're in the Heartwood Roses Garden, and there's something that we're walking through, this um, sub the arbor that we're walking through, and you know, she, we were holding hands, and then she kind of broke off a little bit, and this is us kind of talking about what her wedding is going to look like. Help me. And she says, you know, I want my wedding to be like this. I, don't know, I want you to walk me through this, and then I'm going to meet my husband. Thank goodness she didn't tell me who that was going to be yet. And what, what's happening is we were walking together. See, who's setting the pace and who's setting the direction? See, see, Brooke is setting the pace, but I was setting the direction. And with that conversation, I was setting the direction pretty, let's go, let's go quick, let's get out of here. See, similar to church life and leadership, the sheep or the attenders and volunteers set the pace, but the leadership sets the direction. And this means that some may want to go faster and others want to go slower. And this creates a tension so that so listen, that, that tension has to be managed well so there's peace provided for both groups of people. And this means that some may leave because they want the pastor to do everything. We've had people leave the church because I could not be there at all times for them. They didn't want to be in a group. They didn't want to give. They didn't want to do hardly anything. They just wanted me. And that to me is so unhealthy. And so our approach is to narrow and maintain the focus. We pursue being simple over being complex. We can spend money and energy trying to figure things out, making things more complex, but it doesn't really get us anywhere. We believe that we need to narrow the focus and we're able to do fewer things with greater impact. That means the more focused our environments are, greater the relevance and better the connection, higher the quality. This is why we create staff and lead environments on Sunday that act as steps. All right, It's easier to take a step than it is to take a giant leap. Think of like the floor is lava. All right, our responsibility as a church is to create environments. God's responsibility is to change lives. So, did, so we try to do our best to determine the ultimate environment for life change. And so for our kids, we believe that in Wombaland and Upstreet and even in transit, we believe those environments can set those kids up for life change. We create steps to that environment. All right? We're not trying to create programs, but steps. An environment that is an effective step is easy for the outsider, obvious to the initiated, and a strategic step toward the win. And our win is our mission. And our mission is to inspire people to follow Jesus by engaging them in the life and mission of our church. So at the end of the day, we desire peace in each of your lives and peace with each other so that we can share that God desires peace with our neighbors, friends, and family. Sharing 
your faith can kind of fall flat on its face when you're a person that doesn't have a lot of peace in your life. And so the point is, is not only do we have peace with God, but we also need to have the peace of God. I love what but Paul writes to the Roman church, he says, Therefore, since we have been made right in God's sight by faith, we have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ our Lord has done for us. Again, reiterating the fact that it doesn't rely, our salvation doesn't rely on us. And because of that, we have peace. Same thing needs to happen in our life. Aside from salvation, as we grow in our faith, we need to be relying on God to navigate us and help us through our different situations so that we do have his peace. Well, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this day. Thank you for allowing us to understand that deconstruction in itself is not a bad thing. Help us to understand that there are some things in our lives that we do need to deconstruct that takes us away from you, that takes us away from a life satisfied from following you. Father, I ask that for some of us, we may not have peace with you. Like our salvation isn't settled. We're trying to do things on our own. I just ask that, and some people have burned out and they've walked away from faith and maybe they're stepping back in and trying to figure things out again. And I just ask that you would allow them to understand that you've done everything. All they have to do is believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus and they will be saved. They will be set free. They will have peace with you. Father, for those of us who are Christians and followers of, of Jesus, I ask that you would help us navigate our situations, that we would develop a reliance on you. Father, for volunteers who are, who are tired, I ask that you will strengthen them. I ask that we will be able to maximize their talents and abilities and their spiritual gifts. Father, help us continue to do less for more as a church. In Jesus' name, amen.